at the end of the universe lies the beginning of Inglorious Trexperts. This episode is brought to you by Milliways. If you've done six impossible things this morning, why not round it off with breakfast at Milliways? Back in the 70s and 80s, before the advent of VHS, chances are, if you saw a classic movie, it was on the 430 movie. With their famous theme weeks, it was a chance to see movies you never saw and get reacquainted with some old classics. So, join us now for the 430 movie. Welcome to Post-Apocalypse Movie Week on the 430 Movie. This is Mark A. Altman, and I'm here with our usual band of experting... Expert programmers. <laughs> We're all experting. And, uh, they're here to disseminate fascinating tidbits of information about your favorite movies. Uh, I have uh, writer-producer Steve Melching here. Hello. Alongside concept designer Darren Docterman. Hi. And returning champ, film and TV <laughs> uh, writer, Mr. Ashley E. Miller. Hola. How and, much money did you win last week? All of it. <laughs> and, and this week, we're very happy to be joined by a special guest for Post-Apocalypse Week. Uh, it is the showrunner for uh, USA's Colony. Uh, he also has written a number of uh, uh, f- popular feature films. and well, feature uh, films. Feature films. <laughs> <laughs> it's Ryan Condell. Welcome to the show, Hello. Ryan. Hello. Very good to be here. Yeah. Thank you. Welcome. Welcome, and uh, it's a a great week to have you because, of course, we're talking about post-apocalyptic movies, and uh, I believe at one point you uh, did some work on the Logan's Run uh, screenplay. I I did. One of of many since uh, (laughs) since 1996 when uh, good man Joel Silver started trying to make that movie over at Warner Brothers, and so it continues. You would think by now, you know, it would be would. I mean, it's such a it's 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 such a beloved anti classic. Maybe that, it just shouldn't be remade. Maybe it's a, maybe it's coming it just, to that possibility. Yeah. The, the the ironic thing is, if the remake was in the Logan's Run world, it would have been killed. Your screenplay has turned black. Yeah, it's blinking <laughs> <your screenplay's laughs> red. It has submitted itself for renewal. <laughs> renew. Well, as we know, there is no sanctuary. <laughs> It's option time. Renew. <laughs> there is no sanctuary from our bad puns. Uh, we are here uh, to talk about post-apocalyptic movies, and as we do every week, uh, each of our expert programmers will suggest a movie for a different day of the week, and uh, these are post-apocalypse movies, which is a pretty large dystopian genre of science fiction, but a popular one, uh, surprisingly, and um, we're going to so start as- Apocalypse a- Now would not be one yeah. of them, because Ironically. the apocalypse is now. That's but right. it has, to be, post- has to be apocalypse post- later. Post- right. The, the <laughs> exactly. apocalypse has to be later. Right. So, yeah, if the apocalypse is happening that's now. Apocalypse now. now. That's right. <laughs> yeah. That's right. That's right. That's why the, 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 the Trump White House would not be eligible for this because it's an apocalypse happening now. We're looking at apocalypses happening later. But uh, we're not political. <laughs> <laughs> so. There are fine people on both sides. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Are there? (laughs) Not after watching the Brett Kavanaugh hearings. Um, Okay. So, Steve Melching, as always, starts us off for Monday. Um, What do you think? Well, you know, I've been... been, Last few episodes, I've been doing some kind of deep cuts uh, to lead us off. So this week, I'm going to kind of go for the low-hanging fruit and go after a film that is... 
probably was served as my introduction to the post-apocalyptic genre and remains possibly my favorite example of the genre, and that's George Miller's The Road Warrior, uh, a.k.a. Mad Max 2. Um, This is a film, obviously, it was a sequel to Mad Max, um, but in this film, he's there's not even a vestige of civilization left. He's out in the wasteland uh, with his dog and his interceptor and, uh, you know, uh, starring Mel Gibson, of course, um, and uh, uh, coming across a, uh, a group of uh, survivors that uh, lives in a, a gas uh, refinery and uh, are dreaming of uh, finding a... Uh, uh, a lush haven for themselves uh, away from the bands of marauders that are relentlessly attacking them and trying to take everything they have. It, it, I mean, this movie is absolutely iconic. Uh, and uh, I would say this is the film that really spawned the sequels. Um, I don't think Mad Max got much attention when it was released here initially, the first Mad Max film. Uh, but this film, I think, uh, uh, made an impact and led directly to uh, Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome and, of course, uh, Fury Road uh, in recent years, which is also, I think, a masterpiece of post-apocalyptic filmmaking. Um, George Miller just creates this incredible post-apocalyptic vision of these, uh, these warriors of the wasteland that have this patchwork armor and these these vehicles uh, this whole economy based on fuel and uh you know it's incredibly violent uh it's got terrific action set pieces uh it's got great characters i mean the the leader everyone's seen this film so i'm just reiterating what you what you know we all love about it the lord humongous this huge brawny muscle man in a metal hockey mask and leather shorts i mean that's amazing and vernon wells as wes with his feathers and his uh, houseboy uh, <laughs> and his motorcycle and the feral uh, kid, the feral child, yes, been, been resurrected as an internet meme now. He's in a second life with his <laughs> with his uh, sharpened boomerang. Yes. Uh, uh, I mean, it's just an incredibly inventive film, and I mean, you know, I, I could almost nominate Fury Road as maybe the best example. I, Fury Road, I, I didn't think anyone could top. The Road Warrior, uh, I didn't think it could be topped, and somehow Fury Road did. But I- I'm going to stick with The Road Warrior because it was uh, it was first and, and so iconic. Yeah, it's funny. I'm going to say something sacrilegious. I'm not a huge fan of the um, Mad Max films, but I love Fury Road. Mm-hmm. But I think you're right to nominate Road Warrior. That is really the film that sort of defined that franchise. Um, and uh, I-, I personally like Fury Road a lot more. But uh, I think that's a good choice. I mean, I clearly you can't have a post-apocalypse week without George Miller and uh, the Mad Max films. Yeah, it's a subgenre. Yeah, Mad Max to Mad Max something is like a subgenre. I mean, that's always you know. It's imitated kind of so often. Imitated. Yeah, it's one right. of those films yeah. like Die Hard that is so mm-hmm. iconic and just becomes so imitated both in its look and in its structure and the types of action set pieces it does. Um, Fury Road somehow took it to the next level with its absolutely stunning cinematography and it was just so relentlessly inventive that film like all the different factions looked so different the action scenes were incredible in that movie i I can't believe this is coming from a a director who's what in his 70s yeah 
Um, yeah, George Miller is just a terrific director of all kinds of genres. Old but... people are surprising. <laughs> yeah, right. it's, it's also uh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah, the uh, you know the Road Warrior is is really the urtext of <laughs> these sorts of movies. Um, you you can't even begin to talk about them unless you talk about the Road Warrior. And I think there's nobody more perfect than George Miller to kind of take what he had done. Um, and expand on that just in terms of the design, expand on that thematically, but without truly changing his own filmmaking techniques other than how they evolved over the years. He didn't suddenly go, you know what, we're just going to do everything in CGI. Like They spent a long time shooting stuff like out in the desert on Fury Road. It was a grueling shoot. I think it took 30 years. Um, well, they, but, they, no, this, literally, they were planning to shoot this film before 9-11, right. and then 9-11 happened, and their locations proved just to be too dangerous. They couldn't shoot. They were too afraid to shoot in Africa, um, and, and the whole thing kind of fell apart. And I, I remember being really disappointed. I was so excited. Well, that's to when see Mel Gibson entry. was going to star. Yeah, yeah, I was so excited to see a new entry in this series, and then it got delayed in whatever, 16 years totally worth it though right. somehow but, but even when they started incredible. rolling camera i mean it, yeah. it took a long time to make that film um i think and i think you're right to pick road warrior over fury road even though i love fury road although i think so here's like the here's the and i'm saying this is somebody who loves the movie okay <laughs> um i mean it's basically a movie about a really long u-turn um but <laughs> <laughs> but the road warrior i mean well, it's it's a multi-point turn. I mean, yeah, it, totally. You have to kind of go more like a K turn because the U turn would be illegal. Yeah, absolutely. And then you've got like and Mad Max is a cop, and that's awkward. Um, <laughs> the thing that's great Abuse about of power. yeah, totally. <laughs> you you can't really do Fury Road without the Road Warrior to to define that aesthetic. And the thing about the aesthetic that he defines is it's not arbitrary. A lot of people tried to imitate it, but what they didn't get was that um, Miller wasn't just um, creating these visuals for the sake of the visuals. He was building a world right down to the goddamn dental work on some yeah. of these characters. Um, it all felt like a world that we could recognize as as tangible and real. And what I love about this movie, um, other than, and I was fortunate enough to watch it um, at the Arclight several weeks ago on the big screen again, and it just looked amazing and beautiful, is aside from the fact that Mel Gibson owns this film with something like 12 lines of dialogue, one of mm-hmm. which is like, oh, I can drive that truck, yeah. um, is that the story, simple as it actually is, is actually really good. And the storytelling is great. It's not just that the action sequences as action sequences are incredibly well executed. It is that they tell a great story so that when you get to the punchline, when you realize that you are essentially in this post-apocalyptic great train robbery, <laughs> and like you open up that truck and you realize what's inside of it and what Mad Max, the guy who, you know, he doesn't stick his neck out for anybody. Totally different film, but you know what I'm talking about. Um, like what he's done for these people, it's just, it's kind of moving. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and it's, it, it represents an evolution of this character who, if you, if you watch him in the context of having watched Mad Max, which I think um, certainly shows um, its, you know, its position kind of in... Um, in, uh, in Miller's filmography as to when he made that film, the kind of filmmaker he was, but had brilliant things 
about it, especially the ending. Um, but when you look at it in the context of that character and the journey he's been through, um, when we see him in Mad Max losing his family, the way that he does, that he goes from being a guy who is trying to maintain order in this incredibly screwed up world, discovers that that's impossible. Like he's right on to the, the border in that film. He's like, yeah. And then he crosses it. Yeah. And then when he finds these people, it is really about him reconnecting with the person who could have been a cop in a previous life, could have been a public servant, had a family, was a father. And I think that's why it's powerful and that's why it works. He's a little bit of a guest star in Fury Road. And he's a great guest star and it's Tom Hardy and he's he's awesome and he does an amazing Mel Gibson imitation without feeling like he's doing a Mel Gibson imitation. But The Road Warrior, I think, is, is kind of a perfect sequel for all of those reasons. Great. Yeah, I mean, I have to say it really is one of those seminal films of 1982 that we talk about so often, uh, Road Warrior, in the sense that, you know, it really changed the way we understand genre storytelling and, you know, rests alongside films like Conan and Star Trek II and Tron, you know, which were really the, the beginning of a certain type of genre picture that, you know, clearly resonated with us and so many other people. So I, I, it's another reason why I think Road Warrior is probably, you know, the signature iconic film of the franchise, uh, even though I personally prefer Fury Road. Um, I'm, but, I'm kind of remaining a little bit quiet on this because... I frankly am not a fan of any of the films. And my personal opinion is that I think that they are, even even though the story is well told, I think it is the harbinger of bad movies to come in terms of, uh, you know, uh, uh, explosions over content, uh, action over, uh, you know, interesting characters. Um, I think that the wrong things were taken from the lesson of Road Warrior and brought here now into our present day. And that's sort of my feeling about it. I mean, other than that, it's it's fine. But, but they're sort of like post-apocalyptic westerns, which is something that I do like about them. Sure. But on the other hand, you know, it sort of said, oh, if you throw a Tina Turner song at something, you can make it better. <laughs> so, uh, well, as with any. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Especially if it's a, song, if it's a movie about um, Tina Turner. You know, and Beyond Thunderdome is another one of those movies where it's completely schizophrenic, like where the first half is really good and then it's just a dud after that. And there aren't many other movies that you get to hear the word gazoloin. (laughs) 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 Yes, that's that's true. So uh, Monday, Road Warrior. Tuesday, Mr. Ryan Condell, special oh, I guest. I to come in. Or I was thinking you guys would give me Friday or Saturday or something. In this. Well, Saturday we'll be home. Oh. Uh, <laughs> we'll, we'll be home watching The Love Boat. But, uh, but uh, we, I, we can give you, if you want, we can wait till Friday for you. We no, can bring no. You in for Friday. I, I will take it. Uh, I okay. will take it. I, uh, I, I might get yelled at over this and, and thrown off the podcast, but I haven't We're prepared, too tired to prepared to defense. We're throwing uh, it. And, and, and you <laughs> didn't say uh, um, hail to the Chiefs. Uh, I did not. Not yet. Uh, so another film from 1982, and my, my personal favorite film, uh, Blade Runner. Okay. Which I okay. think, you know, not – we. it is a post-apocalyptic movie because not all apocalypses end in uh, tribal <laughs> warfare in the desert. Um, you know, this was a world that really Scott crafted that was seen as the end of, you know, the end of something. The animals don't exist anymore in this world. They're, they're made artificially. Um, you know, there's the, the Vangelis' great score. There's a track on the score, Memories of Green, because oh, mm-hmm. people don't even remember what the color green looks like. I mean, that sounds Unless like a post-apocalypse to me. <laughs> yeah, but it, it, in a way, you know, coming off of uh, The Road Warrior, and certainly these films were made in parallel, so there's no way for one to be referencing the other. It's just such a different look at what the actual apocalypse will most likely look like. I mean, Road Warrior happened at a time when, 
it was the height of the uh, Cold War panic. And, you know, certainly that was a, even though they never say it, it was a post-nuclear wasteland. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Blade Runner, you know, does many things it does incredibly well is it speaks to a more realistic uh, future, you know, one that one that you know we see ourselves. Well. Yeah, we see ourselves. Well, it's facing. the future of man and uh, winding up with a whimper, and not a bang. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Not ending in a nuclear blast, yeah. but ending ending <laughs> at the end of a long illness. Now, here's right. the question for you. So, if we're going to show Blade Runner on Tuesday, which version of Blade Runner are we showing? Uh, well, if we're showing it back in the day, I think there's only one version to show, which is the theatrical cut. But I mean, my my preferred version, I will just say very honestly, my preferred version is the final cut. I think I feel like that is the the probably the the version that that Ridley did intend. You know, unlike the special editions, which we could do a whole you know angry podcast on. I think it really is the version that Ridley intended in 1982, and without all the studio interference and lack of ability to finish the film and budget issues that, you know, other than I think Zora going through the plate glass and having her head, you know, CG replaced, the 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 this the storytelling, the narrative of that film is is what Ridley intended. So I would say either that or the director's cut. Certainly no goddamn voiceover. No cold sushi, that's what my ex wife used to call me. Exactly. Okay. So my uh, my you know, and I would just point out to the viewers if you are gonna seek this out, um of course, the brilliant uh, Blu-ray edition by Charlie De Lazarica mm-hmm. is uh, an extraordinary. It is probably the great um, uh, DVD Blu-ray set uh, ever produced. And the, only, and the 4K, I have to say, that film in 4K looks just stunning. Yeah, yep. stunning. But there's also one of my favorite special features of all time, not just the Dangerous Days documentary, but the way that Charlie took the um, outtakes and alternate takes and constructed sort of this faux linear narrative using discarded voiceover, using discarded scenes, alternate takes. So rather than sitting and just toggling through, you know, uh, alternate take here, a deleted scene, he constructs sort of this 40-minute or 45-minute version of Blade Runner with outtakes, and it's just fascinating to watch. And it's a hoot because some of the Harrison Ford narration, I mean, is just dreadful, and it's, yeah. it's wildly entertaining. They don't yeah. advertise for killers in a newspaper. Yeah. Well, unless it's... <laughs> They do. Unless, unless you're in you news, newspaper advertising. Um, <laughs> so I'll, I'll differ a little bit with my good friend Ryan in the sense that, look, I agree the Final Cut is the best version. However, comma, <laughs> I don't think that we would really be having any conversations about Blade Runner whatsoever if the original version with the voiceover had not existed. Because I don't – because we all come to that movie having seen that version – Mm-hmm. Um, having heard everybody talk about the goddamn movie, so that we suddenly have this context that makes the movie make sense. And I think the final cut is this beautiful, um, just it's a dream. And it's it's it sounds great and it looks amazing. And Harrison Ford is just he's Harrison Ford. He's he's perfect in every way. He's not bad in anything. I mean, think of it. Has Harrison Ford ever been bad in anything? Yes. Hollywood homicide. Okay, (laughs) fine. Fine, smart guy. The Force Awakens. (sighs) So, so, (laughs) point being that, um, yes, I agree that the the voiceover version is vastly inferior to the final cut. But I feel like it's kind of the gateway drug to the final cut. A necessary step in the process. So it's like, you know, if you're like, if you're new to it, I would say watch the version, the theatrical cut. If you've 
never seen it before, absolutely watch Final. I I see. I have to disagree even more. I I really like the theatrical cut. That's the that's the version that I fell in love with. I saw it in the theater in the summer of '82. I joined the Blade Runner fan club that summer. I still have my fan club kit that has my spinner operator permit and my replicant detector card and all that stuff. That's awesome. And I totally agree with what you were saying that that film with the narration as sort of goofy as it can be at times provides that critical context that we that modern viewers bring to the film just as a given that and you know I loved seeing the different versions of the film as they were coming out I remember going to see the work print mm-hmm. yeah, the at art. the new art yeah, yeah. and having my mind blown and I remember the uh, but did you think it was a better movie then when you when you saw that did you prefer I I, I loved seeing it and probably yeah. in that moment well, I, I loved did. it with the planet of the apes score which... Well, yeah, I, I think because of, because I was such a massive fan of Blade Runner, I loved seeing that new cut, and it, and I did think it was better. And then I saw this the next cut, and then finally the final cut, and I really yeah. loved I loved the final cut. But I find myself all now going back to the release cut and watching the release cut. That's really I think, interesting. I think the thing that I think about the release cut is that no matter what you think about the voiceover, it gives it the lineage of a noir detective movie. Mm-hmm. That is its connection to what you know we may have been used to earlier from previous movies that we've seen, right? And I think that is an essential thing to understand the movie. Not, not only for him explaining things going on, but understand what the whole mindset of the movie is. And it's, it's this genre taken out and put in a different setting. Well, it's so interesting you said that because I was going to say something very similar. To me, when you saw it in 1982, that's exactly, you know, before all this um, baggage came, you know, mm-hmm. masterpiece, you know, uh, 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 you know, science fiction classic, it was sci-fi noir. Right. It was, so, it was a flop. That and, was and he very was quickly a detective on a case yeah. in the future. So the idea of the narration seemed perfectly logical. And in fact, we make fun of the narration because he's sleepwalking through it. But there's some really great narration in there as well as the goofy lines. Um, you know, and I mean, I'm in a minority. I think I'm one of six people who like Altered Carbon on Netflix, and which is also because I like it because it's sci-fi noir. It's pulpy sci-fi noir. Mm-hmm. And I think if you Cyberpunk. divest Blade Runner mm-hmm. from the legend of Blade Runner, you know, as sci-fi noir, the theatrical cut is wildly entertaining. Do I think the final cut is better? Probably. You know, is that the version we should show? Um, probably. <laughs> but I do feel defensive about the theatrical cut because there's a lot yeah, I really and love. And I about love it. watching the final cut and hearing the atmospherics that are covered by the narration. I love hearing. Yeah, that's the thing. The ambient sound yeah. and the music. Sound of the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. Um, I loved hearing that uh, the first time I, and I still love hearing it. Yeah, I mean, to me, the movie, the movie. I've always said the movie is it's it's three dimensional poetry, and that's not meant to sound as pretentious as it does admittedly sound. If you had made it, it would be pretentious. As a yeah. viewer saying that, it's That's not right. pretentious. Yeah. <laughs> I like that. But, it, you know, for me, I um, I came to it later in life, so actually, I my first experience of the movie was the director's cut when everybody was mm-hmm. raving about it, because mm-hmm. I was in, you know, I was in high school at the time, and I was a big Harrison Ford fan, of course, grew up in Star Wars and Indiana Jones. Knew the Blade Runner existed, but didn't really know what it was all about. So my entree into that was the 
the director's cut. And imagine seeing that for the first time without the narration to kind of, you know, handhold you through it. So I I knew I loved that movie before I was able to actually love that movie. I mean, I had a similar experience in reading Dune when I was a kid. I mean, I remember my, it was my dad's favorite book, and I read Dune probably when I was 10 years old. And, I mean, it was just, you know, mind-blowing. But I didn't understand anything that I was reading because I didn't have the adult context to put a lot of those references that Herbert was making into the movie. But for me, Blade Runner is, is this... You know, it's this gift that every time you go back to it, you get to, you know, unwrap new layers of it and you find things in the in the music. I mean, even, you know, uh, there's uh, there's this tremendous I forget who it was probably uh, Varese Sarabanda or however you pronounce that. The 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 30 track long three disc Blade Runner, Mm -hmm. you know, all this extended score. There's all the score that's not in the movie. Mm -hmm. There are secrets in that movie that are revealed in the titles of these tracks that were never actually (laughs) in the movie. And just these things that you're able to pull out of it and, you know, with withdraw and extract and I mean that's that to me the rarity of a movie especially nowadays and we were talking about Fury Road the last time around one of the recent genre movies where I felt like it, every, if you could watch that movie 10 times and it would reward you every time and you get to go back and pull new things out of it it's so rare to find a movie nowadays when, when they're just made as this disposable entertainment where you can really just live in that world and 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 take new things from it every time. And that, that, I mean, that's really why. It certainly wasn't my favorite movie when I was 16 years old, but it's it's become that over time because it's just the thing that I find myself revisiting most often out of all these I remember being love. so excited when the real Vangelis score finally came mm-hmm. out because I, I love the new American Orchestra version. I played it more symphonic and has the orchestrations. Yeah, it's and really I played great. it in my car. I had a yeah. tape of it in my car that I played all the time, and I still love it. I still love listening to it, but it was so exciting to get the true score yes. to that film, which is brilliant also. Um yeah, the first I'm really I- glad that the film it, it, it was has finally been recognized uh, because it yeah. was kind of forgotten in '82. It's I AFI it. Top 100 now. Yeah, and and we'll only move up the list. But think, it, it came out in that yeah. that super crowded summer of '82. Yeah, that it was very easy to get lost, and especially you know Harrison Ford is coming directly off Raiders of the Lost Ark and Empire Strikes well, Back. I remember it when right. it came out on VC, VHS, I was so excited because that's the forgotten cut. It was Blade Runner uh, with additional gore. I, Oh, seen right. in theaters, right. and it was when he the eyeballs, uh, the eyeballs and that was added uh, for for home video, and that was like, oh wow, cool, and you know, the, and the fingers and the nostrils, yeah, 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 and so that was actually, and then there was the New York cut, which was the work print, which had the Planet of the Apes score and had a bunch of other things, the, new, the titles, and then are. the official director's cut, and then of course uh, the final cut. Um, it's it, any version you watch, you're 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 going to be rewarded. Uh, they're all great, but uh, you know it's 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 Ryan's pick, so it'll be uh, Blade Runner: The Final Cut on Tuesday. Oh, that's me. Uh, <laughs> um, on uh, uh, that's not my phone ring. You're not Blade Runner. Uh, you're not you're not Revlin. Um, uh, it's the Voight Comp test. Uh, I'm uh, going to turn to. Um, Darren, for Wednesday, for his Wednesday yes, choice. Wednesday. Well, I guess an apocalypse depends on which side of it you're on, <laughs> uh, whether or not it's the end of your world or the beginning of another. So my little sojourn is to right here, the Planet of the Apes. Mm-hmm. Ah, love it. From 1968. Uh, it's the end of one world, the beginning of another. Uh, it's you know obviously it's a classic. Uh, Charlton Heston at his uh, most uh, scene-chewing. Uh, 
amazing uh, makeup effects. Uh, and, uh, you know, it just shows you that uh, gorillas and chimpanzees and uh, orangutans can't get along together very well. Uh, they stay in their, on their own uh, lunch tables. Uh, so um, it's, it's uh, you know, it's, it has become so uh, referenced and so uh, iconic that it's almost, you almost forget what an amazing moment it is uh, in time and in movie making. The one cut where we hear the the horn call out when they're in the middle of the cornfield and you cut to the gorilla on horseback, yeah. you're going, holy crap! Yeah. It's, it's amazing. Shocking. And, and, you know, I got to see it uh, last year uh, at, in a theater. I guess uh, they did a special uh, uh, screening of it. And it's just amazing. Again, Franklin Schaffner, uh, an amazing director, uh, at the height of his power. Um, it's just uh, an amazing, again, Jerry Goldsmith score. Uh, and not only uh, uh, deep uh, uh, meaning in mm. terms of uh, you know things happening in society and uh, how we relate to each other, uh, but also, you know, obviously the cautionary tale of uh, what uh, what may lie in store for us, and you know, don't don't protect apes. That's, yeah. that, I think that's what that. Yeah, uh, and and, and yeah. you know, social commentary of the time. Yeah. You know, <laughs> don't trust anyone over uh, twenty one. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, which and is a little dated. Charleston Heston, but for sure, <laughs> with a gun. Sure. Uh, but you know, uh, there, there's so much uh, that's relevant about the the stratification and the of ape society mm-hmm. and and the way that. Uh, uh, the segregation of humans, and it, it really is is super uh, relevant, and um, uh, it, it's really sad for me to see because I do like the new Planet of the Apes movies quite a bit. Yeah, I do uh, too. Yeah. But I, what I don't like is the way that the original has been marginalized to an extent because younger audience seem to only uh, want to watch with the fancy CGI right. and you know uh, and 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 uh, the current iteration. And it seems and, to me that a lot of the deeper meaning is gone. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It 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 only has meaning in terms of what the characters are doing. It has no sort of symbolic meaning at all. But I don't the, know if that's at least for me true. Sure, I mean, me. but I think that it's just it's become its own thing. It's just it's Absolutely. taken on a meaning yeah. of its own. But I miss having um, you know I I was shocked that Planet of the Apes for the anniversary last year didn't come out on 4K. Yeah. Um, you know because it's a st- stunning looking uh, film that would look. Gorgeous on uh, on 4K and 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 the fact that it hasn't been released on 4K is kind of a kind of a travesty. Uh, it's funny because you you said uh, Planet of the Apes. I was actually going to nominate. Now I'm not uh, beneath the Planet of the Apes because that to me is more of an post apocalyptic yeah. film in the sense of the mutants and and the bomb and the destruction of the Earth at the end. Uh, that really seems to hammer home a post apocalyptic yeah, that, film. Current apocalypse. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, and let's consider for a moment that you know people seem you know, a lot of people forget that. It wasn't Star Wars that invented the modern franchise, science fiction franchise. Planet of the Apes spawned not only four film sequels, but a a television series, series, an animated animated series, and merchandise. A toy line with action figures. It was, you know, as it's a great point. As a kid growing up in the 70s, these films were on television all the time. The TV show was on, the toys. I mean, it was very popular. It was, you have to wonder. Yeah. You have to wonder if Star Wars even exists without it. Yeah. Because, okay. you know, certainly that was in in Lucas's, uh, you know, well, in, in the in the taproot cycle of the things that led him to that. More importantly than that, 
he film. was in Alan Ladd's mm-hmm. at sure. Fox. Right. Would he have greenlit Star right. Wars at Fox without the them success. having made all this money yeah. off of Planet of the Apes? I don't know if they would have. Um, you know, I don't think he would have been able to greenlight it. Um, but you know, I will say that yes, um, this all takes us back to the beginning of the 430 right. movie because I think what inspired this podcast and what probably re- we remember the most fondly about the 430 movie, of course, is Planet of the Apes yeah. Week, yeah. Um, where they would show Planet of the Apes over two days and repeat the 20 minutes on the second day to get it to fit the two right. time slots. Um, so Which Planet of the Apes is kind of a seminal movie in um, you know 430 movie history yeah. in our childhood, certainly. But And that's how you guys are probably first exposed to it, right? Exactly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. on television. television uh, absolutely. absolutely. Like, um, for me, and I again, I'm, well, probably the baby. Like of this, you're the baby. In more ways than one. My whole experience with Planet of the Apes well, was the like, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. And also, I poop myself occasionally. But thank God day. you guys clean it up. It's, it's um, day. it's very long day. No, um, it, I just I responded to different things in um in those movies, and for me, the the sort of the the, the keystone um moment for Planet of the Apes, the thing that that kind of kept bringing me back to it and anchored me to it it wasn't in planet of the apes it was it was was it conquest when they go back in time to new york that's escape that's escape okay so it's escape an escape from planet of the apes. Uh, escape from the planet of the apes uh the the end of that movie where they throw the baby into the river mm-hmm. just that's one of those images in film that just stays with me. I remember seeing that as a child and not really understanding the symbolism of that at all, but I did understand the emotional symbolism of that. Mm -hmm. I did understand what it was like, you know, for this mother to do that. And like, and it just, it it gave those movies a certain um, emotional reality that changed them for me. Like once I saw that, you know, I like, I I watched the other movies differently as Mm -hmm. a child. Like, because I wondered about that. I wondered about that baby. That's what stuck in my head. And I think what's great about the Planet of the Apes series is that this is almost too facile to say, but it it humanizes the apes. Right. I mean, and if you think about it, it introduces them as you know as aliens, as as mm-hmm. complete other, right? And it's not saying at the very beginning of Planet of the Apes, oh, well, right. we're on Earth and they're just apes and they've yeah. taken over. You know, it's no, you don't find out until you find the goddamn Statue of Liberty. Spoiler alert. What? P.S. <laughs> God right? damn it. Even and though so, Fox put the, the damn, damn, the damn uh, on the video yeah, in the yeah, 90s. Yeah, yeah. Totally. Brilliant. Um, but by the end of that, and that you ruined the ending movies. of Spaceballs, yeah. too. Thank Margaret. you. <laughs> <laughs> but you do understand them as, as, um, as something that, that they're like us. I mean, there's yeah. just. It's just something incredibly. Well, they're more human than the humans in the movie. Yes. that's the thing. Yeah, yeah. Because Taylor has lost all his will and lost all his uh, compassion, and he has been uh, hardened into this jerk. Yeah, but that's such a great point because it's such a darkly nihilistic franchise. Could you imagine it being made? First of all, Charlton Heston is your lead, who is a complete self-involved narcissist mm-hmm. who hates misanthrope. other people. Yeah. He's a misanthrope. Yeah. He hates people. He, he's on this adventure, not for one giant leap for mankind, yeah. because he wants to get away from people. Yeah. You know, you have a 40-minute well, hiking scene 
through the freaking <laughs> um, uh, a forbidden zone where mm-hmm. nothing happens other than score and people barely talk to each other. And a mo- you know a, every movie series is completely dark. We talked about the first one, the Statue of Liberty reveal. You know, uh, could you, going out? Could you admit? You know, that's not something you come out. It's a feel good movie of the year. Mm-hmm. Beneath the Planet of the Apes, they. Blow up the earth, right? <laughs> in, 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 in escape, they throw the baby out with the bathwater, and right. conquest is a race riot. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's like this is a franchise in the '60s and '70s. It's yeah. crazy that yeah. this thing became what, and then it, be, it was a sh- ultimately considered a show for children right. because when CBS right. aired the the short-lived TV show, it was Friday nights because you know it was considered a, a kid's <laughs> show. Right. And then, of course, they 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 edited those into. A series of uh, TV movies right. that became Life, Liberty, and Pursuit on the Planet of the Apes, and the best thing about them were the titles. Right, you know. Well, and the movie rescued all those Iranian hostages, as we learned from Argo. That's right. Ba- <laughs> well, That's right. W- right. Battle for the Planet of the Apes inspired the Argo mission. Yeah. In in Argo. Exactly. I mean, that that to me is the fascinating thing about the the tone of that movie is that it it was considered sort of broadly appealing uh, entertainment for children at the time, but it was it was so deep in its in its uh, themes and its relevance to what was going on. I mean, you think of when it was released, 1968. I mean, that was b- basically the, the eve of the apocalypse in, in America, if you think about what was going on. It was also, that's, that's a major year in real film history in terms of the, the turnover from the films that came before 1968 and then the films that would come in, in the 1970s. Yeah. And, you know, Planet of the Apes, the, the you know, all, the whole series is very much, but the, that first movie is very much a 1970s movie made way ahead of its time. So if you consider that, that fact, that it really is a mid-70s movie made in 1968, plus it's science fiction, visionary science fiction. I mean, the only other thing on the map that's anything like it is 2001, which came out the same year. Right. You know, just rescuing science fiction from the 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 dumpster of the what was being released in the 1950s um that and 2001 are the most important films and yet for that. it's rated g yeah <laughs> which know, i love yeah it has nudity it has violence uh just like moana uh, i mean it, it's it's <laughs> it, right. it's it's really remarkable but you know it's so funny i mean and it just stands the test of time for me i mean you know, on the high holidays, they blow, blow the show for, you know, in, in synagogue. And all I can think about is Planet of the Apes when I hear that, you know, and, 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 and that that's uh, says more about me than anything else. But uh, it, it's such a great, um, I mean, that reveal, as you talked about, of the apes. Uh, but also, of course, the scene where Taylor is caught in the nets when he tries to escape Ape mm-hmm. City, shot at the Malibu Ranch, Fox Malibu Ranch, right. um, and the, the, the Jerry Goldsmith chase music which is so you know one of the great pieces of music ever written for a movie and culminating with him finally getting his voice back and say get your stinking paws off me you damn dirty apes it's not just great science fiction this is you know just a legendary storytelling yeah Mm -hmm. it's storytelling of the highest order and again it goes back to we've talked about franklin schaffner being an underrated director look at the way that movie is shot it's so stylishly shot and and he's another guy who was able to be so facile who moved from genre to genre so he never really got the kind of reputation of a Hitchcock or these guys who sort of stayed in their own lane. Right. Um, and uh, it's a shame because, uh, uh, you know, Patton and Planet of the Apes, I mean, are just two true masterpieces. So there we go. Wednesday. 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 <laughs> so Thursday, Ashley Miller. Okay. So the movie I'm proposing for, for Thursday is a, uh, falls under the heading of, of films that were discoveries for me, i.e. Um, movies that I had no expectation of going in. Or if my ex- I had an expectation at all, it was somewhat negative. 
And then while in the theater, the experience of it just kicked me in the ass and then kicked me in the ass again and then kicked me in the ass so hard I threw up the boot tip. Um, and uh, so the movie is Ass Kickers of 1938. Ass, ass Kickers and Ass Kicked Again. That was the sequel. Um, no, and I look, I had good reason to be suspicious of this film because the lead was an actor uh, in whom I had very little to no faith whatsoever. I associated him um, with kind of messing up uh, another great movie. Um, and uh, and a role that he played in a, in a very simple comedy that I loved but seemed somehow worlds away from, from this film. I could not understand how Keanu Reeves <laughs> was going to carry this crazy, um, what looked like a martial arts movie with lots of shooting and science fiction, and all of which I loved, all of which was in my wheelhouse, but you know, I just, I, I kind of didn't get it. But... Sitting in the theater and watching The Matrix for the first time, God, I wish I could go back mm. and, like, and visit myself, like, you know, like fucking Scott Bakula. Like, I go back and visit myself in time and experience experiencing that movie for the first time again. Because from the very first frame, you know that you are in such expert hands that the storytelling is so assured and it's so interesting and there's suspense and there's real tension. You know, when the phone starts ringing, when he's at work, right? How threatening is Agent Smith? You know, it's like I see two people here. You know, it's just, that's all fantastic. And when it gets to the big reveal, it blows your mind. And at that point in time, you have no idea how badly they're gonna fuck it up in the next two films. But for that beautiful moment in time, you were watching this amazing action film that does things that you have not seen. And for me, I was a big fan of Hong Kong cinema, right? Mm -hmm. I loved John Woo before anybody knew who the hell John Woo was. And to see that sort of action being brought to the big screen in America and being done so well, um, you know, and Lawrence Fishburne is amazing. The casting is just amazing. The science fiction is great. Every part of it is interesting. And it ends just so perfectly. And the great thing about it is you don't realize until you get to that last little scene, that denouement, what the Wachowskis have done. They've essentially, and then they blow it, but they've essentially set up a perfect excuse for a superhero. They've created a superhero. Mm -hmm. And it just leaves you, as they say, you leave them wanting more, it leaves you wanting more. And you know what, God damn it. I still want more. I love The Matrix. I think it's, you know, it, and certainly we're putting together what I think is a very amazing week. And I think The Matrix certainly stands with that. I had the the same uh, experience as you. I, you know, I went into The Matrix with very low expectations. You know, I had memories of Johnny Mnemonic dancing through my head. Mm -hmm. Uh, The last Keanu Reeves cyberpunk film that had come out the the year prior, I think. And I I went to an early screening of it at the Warner Brothers lot at the then brand new Stephen Ross Theater, which is a gorgeous theater. And we were just joking around like, this movie's going to be terrible, right? (laughs) And... The movie. I think we saw it together because I know I saw it with Rob Burnett. Yeah, I, we probably were, and we were all very dubious, and yeah. we all came out completely. Uh... I, I knew by within ten or fifteen minutes. I remember thinking, I can't wait to own this on Blu-ray. Right. Well, DVD. <laughs> I'm DVD. Time, I can't yeah. wait to get the DVD of this. <laughs> 
I can't wait until they invent the next technology. Wow, it'll be ultra high Netflix. <laughs> what are you talking? What's about? a stream? <laughs> yeah, this is. I I wish I I thought the same thing. This is one of those rare experiences that you wish you could go back and experience again because it was so much fun to discover the movie uh, fresh. Because yeah. it was unlike anything else you had ever seen, yes. but then so much like what you had seen. You said, yeah. you know, uh, the John Woo uh, um, films like Hard Boiled and the Killer Killing you know, Killer. Were being discovered in the 90s and this took sort of that Hong Kong chop sake and married it to cyberpunk and married it um, you know to um, all these kind of genres and just did it so well and with such a sense of style because I had just a couple years earlier seen the Wachowskis Bound which was, which was a visual yeah. tour de force which I love this great film noir um, with Meg Tilly and, and um, uh, Jennifer Tilly and, and uh, uh, Gina Gershon and I said these guys to watch and then, so when The Matrix came out, I was excited because of them, but I had the same, oh, it's Johnny Mnemonic, uh, what the hell? And we came out of that mesmerized and enraptured by this movie and how it pushed the boundaries of the genre. And um, as you said about, it seemed like it was teeing up a, a superhero franchise, which is a direction it completely, every time it tapped into something interesting in the sequels, like the, the scene where they talked to Lambert Wilson and you get, oh, this is where werewolves and Dracula and all this stuff came from previous iterations of The Matrix when it was less advanced. It's like, oh, this is going in a really interesting direction and just completely dropped. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, uh, I saw I, – I, same experience, I think, as, as Ashley and great poll, too. I mean, I, I, commending the panel on, you know, and not, not to – not to reduce uh, for Steve's pick for Road Warrior, Bob but Roberts? you're expecting oh, a week of Road Warrior films. And I think yeah, you need to have yeah. Road Warrior on the list, but like this is really good. I, I like the 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 interesting ways that we're looking at the the idea of a post apocalypse, right? We're not. It's not all tribal wars in the desert. But um, I saw I saw this movie in college, and I um, I was I loved movies. I went you know multiple times a week, and it was I can I can think of like three or four experiences where I sat in the movie theater and I was just blown out of my seat and just and this I think was the first time it wasn't just visuals or love of the and all those things were there loving what I'm seeing but just really being unseated with the reveal about what's actually going on here and and having your mind blown and asking these questions about so I I was I was in uh, I guess sophomore philosophy at the time <laughs> mm-hmm. and it's like it's basically philosophy 101 intro to philosophy so i saw this thing on thur- thursday night or whenever the first time you could see it and i had class the next day and i went into my professor and i said we were studying uh my annual kant at the time which mm. is basically what is real you know i think therefore i am right and i went in and i said to him i was like i just saw a movie last night that is this this whole thing that you're teaching it's all it's it's done in this movie and it, but it's science fiction as I, I just breathlessly pitched this thing to him and he goes kid every time I teach Kant everybody comes in here and tells me that the movie they just saw they see it it's like it's great that you're thinking that way you got to expand your mind open your mind just you know but it's trust me like you know let, let the adults drive the bus <laughs> and that, that was sort of the, la- the last last whatever I thought of it I took the class did well in the class whatever to that guy's credit I forget the teacher's name uh, ran into him on campus <laughs> two years later as a senior, and he stopped me on campus and he said, "I'm so sorry." Yeah, <laughs> he's like, "I never told you because it, it just he didn't go see it right away and whatever." But he went he went to see the movie and he's like, "I have taught the Matrix to every class that I have 
had since then in philosophy when I'm teaching Kant because it's such a great way to help them visualize the 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 thing the the layered thinking that this guy is going through. Well, I pick up this glass, but how do I know the glass is real? And if I'm real, if I'm touching it, and I feel it. But this could all just be a simulation. So he th- he basically thanked me and said that, you know, I had saved his philosophy career. Or at least that's the <laughs> that thing that I put that's in my head. That's but, a great story. But yeah, you know what's interesting also is it really is the last vestige of pre-spoiler culture. Hmm. Um, it, it, yeah. it, you went into the Matrix really not knowing anything. I don't know if you really knew like that all this was an illusion and that yeah. there were really you know was a post-apocalyptic movie. You know, I don't recall. It's a long time I didn't ago. Know, I think but about it. This yeah. was yeah. before you know. I think it was I still the AOL Super Bowl Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, it was still the ages of AOL di- dial-up. Yeah. You know, the trailers didn't give away the whole movie. Ain't it cool? Ain't it cool? Was around. Right. This was like the early days of that. But yeah. you didn't go into it where like a million websites and t- shows and things had been talking about, oh, there's a great new movie called The Matrix. And, you know, they're living in a fake world. And Keanu Reeves is actually, you know, has to defeat the machines by going back into reality with Joey Pants. You know, it's like, so. <laughs> <laughs> you know. It's hard to, to understate the importance of this film. It, we touched on a little bit earlier. It's It was like the modern Star Wars in, mm-hmm. in Star Wars blended all of these pre-existing genres in a fresh new way that was exhilarating. And The Matrix did the same thing, as you mentioned, and it also spawned imitators that could not yes. even come close. In I mean, film, even sequel, the film, same filmmakers could do it. Yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's, it's there were so many was fucking so profound. It was also effort, but black, trench co- black trench coats yeah. that showed up in movies and TV yeah. like for years afterwards. Yeah. It was also a, tr- you know, uh, a movie that, you know, a, a, a trilogy, you know, with Star Wars in the sense that, you know, if, if Star Wars had had two sequels that were both Phantom Menace, it would be The Matrix. Right. You know, sadly, they didn't have their Empire Strikes Back where they were able to take what they built in The, the Matrix and build on it. Instead, you know, both those sequels are so flawed and... and, and um, they have moments of awesomeness in yeah. them. Yeah. I think Reloaded is certainly far superior to... Revolutions, which yes. I just think is just unwatchable yeah. and insane. But um, you and, just don't like raves, <laughs> <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> pretty much, my friend. That's really what we're getting on. Here. Yeah, I'm Whoa. against dancing. So when we talk yeah. about this on Footloose Week, that's right. <laughs> well, it'd have to be Dancing Week, okay. right? Yeah, yeah. Well, the Dirty Matrix... Dancing, uh-huh. Footloose. The, yeah. the Matrix is a great, a great, great pick for Thursday, which puts me in a quandary for um, <laughs> Friday. You have 15 films. 15 well, you're I'll, choosing I'll, from. Well, look, I'm just going to throw out some some suggestions, and then we can land on where we want. You know, um, look, certainly high on my list would be the Omega Man again, Charlton Heston in a post-apocalyptic world where he's fighting uh, uh, basically. Uh, Vampires, um, zombies, whatever you want to look at it. Um, great score by Ron Grainer. Um, uh, but it's a little goofy. Um, a little goofy. You know, obviously 12 Monkeys, Terry Gilliam's uh, film uh, is, is terrific uh, post-apocalyptic film. Um, you have Sean Connery and Zardoz, not so much. Um, <laughs> Uh, more recently, Children of Men is a yeah. I was going to say, I, I rewatched Children of Men the other day and I hadn't seen it in years. Terrific, terrific movie. But there are also some very goofy takes on post-apocalyptic uh, Tank Girl, which I really liked when I yep. saw it um, and uh, is a lot of fun. Rachel Talley's uh, film mm-hmm. um, and has the best cover ever of um, Cole Porter's uh, Let's Fall in Love by Joan Jett. Love that. Um, Night of the Comet. Right. You know, so, because yeah. we're all big Catherine Mary Stewart fans here. And, mm-hmm. and of course, uh, in that uh, comic comes and, and uh, 
Uh, the, the world is taken over by zombies, but Kath and Mary Stewart is able to prevail um, by spending a lot of time in shopping malls. <laughs> so a very 80s movie, but delightfully entertaining. Damnation Alley, 1977. It was the film that right. Fox expected to be their huge hit that year. Um, it had a really cool truck, so that counts for something. <laughs> Has a scene of killer cockroaches, <laughs> you know, um, something to consider. Then, of course, if we go back a little, you know, When Worlds Collide is a great mm, post-apocalyptic sure. film. Uh, it was some, uh, really, at the time, state-of-the-art special effects. Uh, it was the original kind of disaster, earth, and peril film that um, you know predates uh, the you know day after tomorrow and stuff like that many, right. by many years. Uh, but you know, for me, it comes down to two titles. Um, well, Sleeper, also Woody Allen wakes up in the Miles Monroe <laughs> wakes up in the future. Big surprise there, uh, coming from Mr. Elvis, and has to uh, <laughs> you know uh, uh, f- you know destroy the leader, the nose, um, who they're gonna clone. Um, but uh, but it comes down to two films for me. One we mentioned earlier, Michael Anderson's Logan's Run, mm-hmm. um, a different 23rd century than was being depicted in right. Star Trek. And and probably the most misunderstood, underappreciated post-apocalyptic movie of all time, um, which uh, I'm a big fan of. And given the fact that Tom Petty died this year, I think it's only appropriate to honor the Postman. The Postman. Postman! Uh, uh, can I hear an amen, brother? Yeah. <laughs> Apparently Postino. not. No, <laughs> the other one. <laughs> so I'm really, I'm really a week on Kevin Costner post-apocalyptic. Well, yeah, yeah. Water, water, water world, yeah, yeah. 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 you know. And to me, like 28 Days Later, uh, Danny Boyle's film yeah. is is brilliant. But I feel it's more a zombie movie. Well, the great than thing about the Postman is that it has. Um, 83% less urine drinking than the water world does. <laughs> well, let's not forget a film that is both a pre- and post-apocalyptic film, The Terminator. Oh, oh yeah. you know what? Oh. Yeah, you're right. Terminator 2. Yeah. How the, you know what? Yeah. Well, well, Steve. Well played, sir. Sneaking well in played. there at the last minute. Aren't you sneaky? Boy, the Terminator is an interesting <laughs> choice. I mean, most people might would probably consider that a time travel film, and but maybe we'd say it's more time travel. But it is legitimately post-apocalypse, just like yeah. Dawn of the Dead would be legitimately yes. post-apocalypse. It's just what do we think is the controlling value? Right. Well, say, well, two of the three characters are in the post-apocalypse. It's just one character that has not yet quite made it. I, I just want to say that the Terminator was such a good movie. I saw it in college that. Uh, there were rats on the theater going past my foot, and I did not leave. I stayed because I was so into the movie. I just put my feet up <laughs> and yeah. watched the rest of the movie. Freaking well, Boston, when, man. When Ashley was giving his preamble to The Matrix, I thought you were going to say The Terminator because I had the same experience seeing that film in 1984, going into it knowing nothing about it other than it starred the muscle man from Conan, and that is had this goofy <laughs> title, The Terminator. You know, it's about a sci-fi robot. I'm like, oh, this is going to be ridiculous. And, like, within five minutes, I'm like, this movie is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. I mean, strictly, you know, is I uh, most of us on this panel are writers. I mean, just just looking at that movie from a narrative perspective, the the perfection. I mean, Ma- Matrix is another one that falls into that, into that realm, you know, the the narrative perfection of the Terminator in terms of every syllable in that movie serving to move the story forward to reveal information to reveal character, I mean I I, I probably end up watching the Terminator once a year just because it still infuriates me how good it is and how <laughs> how cheaply it was made so lean and mean and so lean and mean and I the first time you look up 
at that movie, you're 45 minutes into it. It's just it it just it yeah. it doesn't. It's just relentless. It doesn't stop moving, and it you know, it never stops. But just in terms of it, this, absolutely, the, positively, will, will not stop. stop That's until the whole point of the movie. Yeah. The and if imitation yeah. is the sincerest form of flattery, then this movie should be very flattered because this movie was knocked off and imitated for oh decades afterwards. Still is. Uh, yeah. yeah, still is. Um, you know, there's one other film we missed, um, and given how brutal we were to the Oscar a few weeks yeah. back, I'd have to say Harlan Ellison's A Boy mm-hmm. and His Dog. We can um, actually, no, it's actually not bad. Is an is a, is a interesting yeah, thing. Not only is a tribute Again, to, Jason yeah. to um, Harlan, but, um, you know, Underseen, uh, Shout Factory put out a wonderful uh, Blu-ray of this recently, or it was probably a year or two ago. Um, and uh, it's a terrific little film um, written by... Harlan, L.Q. Jones directed it, mm-hmm. um, and uh, it's a great Don, little Don sci-fi Johnson. movie. Don, Don Johnson. Johnson, you may remember him from Nash Nothing, no. but uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, he's he's amazing. And uh, again, Jason Robards as uh, as the leader of the underground people. Uh, it's better than the Oscar. <laughs> well, it's different than the Oscar. Yep. It it doesn't have as many laughs as the Oscar does. <laughs> no, it doesn't. No. <laughs> uh, uh, well, you know, look, uh, honestly, I'm going to seed my pick because traditionally the, 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 the Friday is a group effort, but because we have a guest, uh, we don't have that slot. I'm leaning towards the Terminator, frankly. I think that's an excellent suggestion. I think that the Terminator is an excellent uh, way to end the, end the week because, you know, Jim Cameron uh, was a stickler for uh, the details and uh, all the wonderful actions and the things like that. And they would tell me, Arnold, don't look at the camera. And so I didn't uh, <laughs> eventually. And uh, I, it was marvelous. It was just wonderful. And I was a robot and it was great. So Sean Connery doesn't think we should put Zardoz on the list. I, I, I would hope that no one ever saw the, that freaking movie again. <laughs> it's, uh, I mean, the, the, the red diapers I was forced to wear are really atrocious. So there was, was a guy at San Diego Comic Con this year. You do a Linda Hamilton impression, impression, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> he needs the wig, though. He needs the wig. Um, I'm surprised that Twelve Monkeys isn't getting more love, because um, I know you're Gilliam fans. I, I'm not a huge fan I'm not of that a huge movie. Fan I um, like it, but I don't love it. Yeah, that's it's how I feel. It's a better idea than it is a movie. Yes, agree. Yeah. Okay, I, I didn't, yeah, I'm surprised. Brazil could be a great Brazil, uh, Brazil, uh, oh. dystopia for sure. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. but not post-apocalyptic as much yeah. as this dystopia. I mean, there's, it's a, there's, it's uh, a bureaucratic apocalypse. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, there a, is Oblivion, the the, the Tom Cruise, uh, which I like. I liked it too. I, I, I like it. it. Um, I wouldn't. I wouldn't swap it out yeah. for any of the films. We I mean, do about. we revisit Logan's Run or I? I, I you know, personally, my look. I obviously have a very sentimental connection to um, to the Terminator. I mean, Sarah Connor. Uh, Sarah Connor Chronicles was one of the best creative experiences of, of my career. I loved working on that show. I loved working in that universe. That um, meant a great deal to me. So, you know, and yet I, so, you didn't pick Terminator for your I movie. I didn't pick Terminator because I didn't make the connection that Steve so brilliantly made. But yeah. I still am happy with picking The Matrix. I think it 100% like, belongs on this list. But, um, but yeah, of what we've kind of talked about otherwise for Friday. And I personally I, prefer the original Terminator to the Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Um, Okay. We, we have a week. We, we have, have a week. week. So Eliminate your week. Monday. <laughs> Monday, uh, post-apocalypse week begins with The Road Warrior. Tuesday, Blade Runner, the final cut. Wednesday, Planet of the Apes. Thursday, The Matrix. And Friday, 
the Terminator. What a week. great this week. Awesome week. This is a really wow. fantastic week. I want to send a special thanks to Ryan Condell for joining us this week. You can follow him on social media at The Wrath of Condell. Just Wrath. Just Wrath. Yeah. Wrath no, of the Vengeance of Condell. Yeah. Uh, previously, yeah. now it's That's Wrath right. of Con- Wrath of Condell. Conquest uh, of Condell. You can follow uh, <laughs> Battle uh, Stephen Melching yeah. at Escape Stephen Melching, yeah. Darren Dockerman at Darren Dock, and of course, Ashley E. Miller at Ashley at Ashmaster Zero. And um, to follow the 430 Movie Podcast, um, you can go to Twitter and hit follow. Uh, we're also on Facebook. And uh, I think you can follow us now on YouTube as well. Please, if you like this podcast, go on Apple Podcasts, rate five stars. Um, and if you don't, don't. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Mark oh, no, A. Altman. No. Um, we have uh, Lore coming out on Amazon. Uh, it's out on Amazon, so check that out from Ashley Miller and uh, the, the multi-talented Sean Crouch. Um, Steve Melching, Star Wars Resistance. And uh, Darren uh, has created some fantastic new logo wear at the 430 Movie Shop, which is at 430movie.com. And, of course, my new book, So Say We All, is available wherever books are sold. So a big thank you to Electric Studios and to Bill Ritter here at Electric for once again making this all possible. And we look forward to seeing you with an all-new episode of the 430 Movie next week. (laughs) 